Turn with me to Luke chapter 7 if you're visiting with us. We do go verse by verse through the scriptures, not consecutively, but we're in two books, Ezekiel on Wednesday, as I mentioned, Luke on Sunday mornings, and we are going to pick it up with where we left off. I love this passage of scripture. I love a lot of passages of scripture. I love all passages of scripture, but some just really resonate more than others, and for different reasons, some with you, some with me. But uh, we're going to pick up with verse 18 and read for uh, verses 18 to 35. This is a passage that I just really uh, love and I find fascinating in many ways as well. Let's start with uh, verse 18 if your Bibles are open. If you don't have a Bible and you can't follow it, just raise your hand. I will make sure uh, that somebody comes and brings you one. So just raise your hand if you don't have one, and we're glad to put one in your hand. Luke 7, starting with verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Uh, these things are related to what we looked at last week, the raising of this man from the dead, uh, the healing of the centurion's servant, and other miracles, not just those two, but other miracles that Jesus had done. These things were reported to John the Baptist by his disciples. Verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, he, being Jesus, cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's really what the poor need, isn't it, folks? What the rich need as well. Verse 23, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled live in luxury and are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. <clears throat> For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. Even the IRS <laughs> justified God. Yes, even the IRS. Maybe even the NSA and a few others, who knows. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, both the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance, and mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came to you neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and said, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come to you eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray again. Father, we ask that your Spirit would speak individually, collectively, Lord, you would comfort, you would convict, you would cleanse, Lord, that uh, we would have you and you alone glorified as you magnify your name and teach us. Lord, it's not me that could teach anyone a thing, but your spirit can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A divinity school invited one of the greatest minds to lecture in the Theological Education Center. One year, the guest lecturer was a professor who spoke for two and a half hours, I won't do that today, proving that the resurrection of Jesus was false. Remind you, this was at a divinity school. 
The professor quoted scholar after scholar and book after book. He concluded that since, uh, since there was no such thing as the historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church was groundless. Emotional mumbo-jumbo. Because it was based on a relationship with a risen Jesus who, in fact, never rose from the dead. And in any literal sense, anyway. He then asked if there were any questions. He asked all these students, do any of you have any questions? After about 30 seconds, an old preacher with a head of woolly white hair stood up in the back of the auditorium. And he said, Dr. Professor, I got one question. He said yes, as all eyes towards, uh, turned towards him. He reached into his lunch sack, and he pulled out an apple, and he began eating it. Crunch, crunch, crunch. He said, my question is a simple question. Crunch. Now, I ain't never read them books you've read. Crunched a few more. And I can't recite the scriptures in Greek or in Hebrew. I don't know nothing about Niebuhr and Hidegger. He finished the apple. He goes, all I want to know is this. This apple I just ate, was it bitter or sweet? The professor paused for a moment and answered in exemplary scholarly fashion. I cannot possibly answer that question, for I have not tasted your apple. The white-haired preacher dropped the core of his apple into the crumpled paper bag, looked up at the professor and calmly said, neither have you tasted my Jesus. The 1,000-plus in attendance could not contain themselves. The auditorium erupted with applause and cheer. If you hear something like that, and it reminds us that all of us, we have the same Bible. We all have the same Bible. We all have the same proof of creation. We're out on the farm yesterday. Some of us think it's amazing that the same God that created the cow created the oak tree. It created this, that, and the other. And uh, one of the kids was eating weeds and thought it was wheat, but that's a different thing altogether. I guess that, yeah, it looks like wheat, but it rhymes with weed. They can see all the surrounding things. They see all the same things that you and I see. We can all see, we can all see transformed lives by the gospel. How can you argue a transformed life? Someone that you used to hate and used to kill and now all of a sudden loves and serves. And there's thousands of those testimonies all around the world. We all have the same witness of Jesus Christ. But what we do with God's word and what we can see with what we've heard, with the truth that's been given to us, is up to us, isn't it? The same thousand students, the professor, the, white, the, the preacher with the white hair, all given the same evidence. We're all talking about the same set of facts. God gives us, thankfully, both the grace, first and foremost, and the will to believe and follow Jesus Christ. He gives us the grace, but also the will to follow him. Those that are seeking the truth and those that humble themselves will, will believe. They will believe the testimony of Christ and the testimony of the Scriptures. Those seeking an excuse, as Jesus talks about near the end of this passage, those seeking an excuse will ultimately resist. This was the case when Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, and it's still the case today. It's still the case today. All the evidence is there, but what will we do with it? If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, an irrefutable witness. An irrefutable witness. We'll look at three things from the text this morning. His testimony, his thoughts. Don't you want to hear Jesus' thoughts on a topic? Jesus, what do you think about John the Baptist? I'm glad you asked. And his testing. What does he think about what we really, what does he think about what comes out of our mouth? Does he think it's fact? Does he really think that the professor who says there's no proof of the resurrection really believes that? Or is he running and hiding with fig leaves that never really works? 
We'll look at these things this morning. An irrefutable witness, his testimony, his thoughts, his testing. Let's look at his testimony, starting with what takes place in verses 18, uh, 19, and all the way down through um, verse 21 and 22. This section of chapter 7, it starts rather unexpectedly, especially given all that the gospel tells us of John the Baptist and Jesus' own witness of John. It's John's sincere question right here that at first glance, I don't know if it caught you or maybe when the first time you ever read this, did John just ask if Jesus is the coming one? Are, are, you, are you really the coming one? First glance, this might seem surprising. And yet, this question is actually very reassuring at another level. Surprising when you first read it, but also reassuring to us as believers. I find it reassuring in two ways, this question. First, John was a man who was called even at birth. We see that very special call in his life, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet John still wanted to know for certain that his faith was accurate and he was on the right course, didn't he? I need to know, is what I think accurate and am I on the right course? Did any of you ever ask, Lord, if what you're doing is on the right course? Am I accurate in reading this, Lord? Am I understanding what I just read? Am I understanding, is that what you really want me to do? This week, the Lord had me put on my heart, text someone, and I didn't really want to text them. Or someone I worked with a couple of years ago. And I had to like search my Bible like three or four times to know for certain. I need to know, Lord, because if I say the wrong thing, I make things worse, not better. And John, he needed to know for sure. Was his faith accurate? Was he on course? Was John said, I want to know, am I on course pointing people to you, Jesus? Because I've been pointing them to you. And I need to know, am I right in pointing them to you? Or is there another? Secondly, and let me say this real quick on that too. We all have doubts sometimes, don't we, about things. We all have doubts about things sometimes. I don't care. The greatest in faith. Would you agree with me that John the Baptist had probably a lot of faith? Yeah, he lived in the wilderness. I don't know about you. There's no grocery stores out there. There, you don't get a paycheck living in the desert. There's nothing out there, and the Lord would feed him. I know he ate locusts and honey. I've told you before. I know that sounds like something you probably don't really want for lunch today. But I believe John came to love it. Delicious. Y'all don't know what you're missing. Enters my mouth as a T-bone steak. Repulses you, but God has given me a great taste for it. I mentioned D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, after the Holy Spirit had given him such power that he had never had before, he said, I never even desired the things that weren't of the ministry of the gospel ever again. He said, I just didn't have any care for it anymore. You couldn't say, well, D.L., we're going to be at the Yankees game, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do this, and you're going to miss out all the fun. He'd be like, I don't care. I'm going to preach the gospel with someone. So John the Baptist had exercised a lot of faith, yet he had doubts. You and I still have doubts, don't we? Even after we've exercised faith, we'll still have those doubts that enter in sometime. Now here's the big question, though. When we have doubts, the question is, what will we do with them? When we have doubts, what will we do with them? And we know what John did. He took his questions to Jesus. Isn't that great? The simplicity of the text. John had a doubt. What did he do with it? Stew on it forever? No. He sent two disciples to the source. If you have doubts, take them to Jesus. Don't take them to a middleman. Take them to the Lord. The second reassuring thing, one, uh, that John was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet he also needed to know 
the course of his faith. He needed that reassurance. But that's reassuring to me, and hopefully it is to you too, because if John needed reassuring, you and I will need reassuring. But second, the second reassuring thing is John's question to Jesus, his sincere question, his taking the question to Jesus, leads to a complete confirmation by Jesus, which is good for us all. Amen? Sometimes, you ever been in class when you were in high school or and you really wanted to, you had no clue what was on the chalkboard. But you weren't going to tell a soul there because you weren't going to look stupid. And finally, someone braver than you said, I have no clue what's on the chalkboard. <laughs> and then the teacher says, anyone else have no clue? Almost every hand goes up. <laughs> so when the elephant in the room is addressed, Jesus helps us all. Amen? It, John's question which shows a greater humility and faith is beneficial to us all because Jesus answered the question and puts it to rest for all of us, but not only for all of us, all of his own disciples and all the disciples that were actually working in the ministry of John. Everyone could be put at ease to say, well, that's settled. We can all move forward. He is the one. Isn't that great? And you don't have to wonder anymore. I don't have to labor over this anymore because John and a few others already addressed this and Jesus took care of it by answering it for us all. Now it's good for us to understand, we need to understand where John was during this time. Physically, as well as where he probably was in his thinking. Uh, And what might have led to any of the confusion he had with this clarifying question. Because that's what it is. It's a clarifying question. Send the Lord, I need to know I'm pointing people to you right and left. I'm telling everybody, I'm not worthy to lose his sandal strap. You need to follow him. I need to understand, because John was at a place right here that's very important for us to understand. John, according to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 11, was now in prison. Yeah, that'll, uh, that'll, that'll mess up your day, won't it? And the way you think things were going. John's now in prison when he sends his disciples to Jesus. We know this from Matthew, like I said, chapter 11. In Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, as well as Luke, back when we were in the third chapter, you might remember this back in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, they tell us that John had told Herod Antipas, one of the four tetrarchs uh, of of what would be modern-day Israel and, and beyond, even over into Jordan and up into Syria, Uh, John had told Herod Antipas that it was unlawful for him, John, right to Herod's face, it is unlawful for you to have taken your brother Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias, to be your own. How to win friends and influence people by John the Baptist. (laughs) Just flat out told a, a major leader of an entire region, you are in sin and you're causing the people to sin. And what you're doing is unlawful. Now John was in prison for what today's politically correct censors would call hate speech. John participated in what many today would call hate speech. John actually leveled a moral accusation, but he didn't level it on his own opinion. By the way, your opinion about morality and my opinion about morality is worthless. You realize that, right? God never asked you or I what we think is moral and what isn't moral. And he never will. Because he's God and he sets the rules. He says, this is what I say is right. This is what I say is wrong. John, go tell Herod this is wrong. Well, what if he accuses me of hate speech? You let me take care of that. What if he thinks that I'm narrow-minded? He already thinks you're narrow-minded. Just go anyway. Everyone thinks you're narrow-minded, John. Go. So he goes and says these things. He's imprisoned. John spoke out about Herod's sin and his immorality, but he used the scriptures. He unlawful. He used the law of Moses. He didn't use his opinion. It doesn't matter about my opinion. We love sinners. Jesus loves sinners. John loves sinners. But God hates sin, and he's never going to compromise his word for a corrupt world. To many, both past and today, Speaking the truth is unacceptable. How dare you make an accusation against Herod? It's Herod's life. If he wants to live that way, if he wants to marry his cousin, if he wants to marry his brother, sister, or whatever, or everything else, and there was a lot of incest in all the Herodians. The whole, it was, it was bad. 
And all that was unlawful, immoral, according to the law of Moses. Still unlawful, according to God. It's still immoral today. Now, John, of course, loved Herod. Do you agree with that? John loved Herod enough. At least somebody was willing to speak the truth and love to Herod. And John was that man. He loved him enough to preach the truth. It's clear that Herod knew. Here's the cool thing. It is clear from the scriptures that Herod knew that John was not speaking on his own. Herod knew that John wasn't giving John's opinion. Here's the thing. If you can speak and say, trust me, my opinion doesn't count, but this is what the Bible says. Let God be your backstop. Don't try and give your opinion of, well, I think it's because of this, or I think it's because of that. Just say what the Word says. and Say it in love. Be humble about it, but graciously say this is what the Word says. And Herod knew that John was not speaking on his own. Did you know that Herod even liked to listen to John? How many of you knew that? How many knew that, really, raise your hand, how many knew that Herod actually liked to listen to John teach? Did you know that some people that hate truth will every now and then turn on a Christian radio station and no one knows it and listen to it? Even the ones they call hate speechers, even the ones that they despise, they sometimes, there's something in the water of God's word that draws thirsty men, even when they don't want to give up what they're holding on to. And Herod had a lot of things to hold on to. He had a lot of power, a lot of position, a lot of wealth, a lot of success, and he didn't want to uh, give those things, but he liked listening to John, much like Felix and Agrippa. They both liked listening to Paul for a period of time. They did. They found Paul, you know a lot. What is it about this? What about this? What are you saying? I don't understand that. You mean I can't have this in my life anymore? Why? All the other Roman leaders have it. And yet with these leaders, Herod, just like Felix and Agrippa with Paul, they couldn't give up. Ultimately, they liked to hear the message, but they couldn't give up their sin and their pleasure. That's ultimately the way it is with every single person. That's ultimately what it is. If God told you, I will save you and you can do anything you want, everyone would get saved. If that was the gospel, if the gospel was this, I come to you with a message, God wants to save you and you don't have to do it. You can do anything you want. Everyone loves that message. By the way, some people preach that message, and that's why everybody loves them. Mark 6, 20, it says, For Herod feared John. Hold on, you said he liked to listen to this. Listen to the rest of the verse. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. Herod protected him. Why? Because it wasn't really John he feared. He feared God because he knew that God was over John, and he said, I know he's holy, I know he's just, I'm going to give him some space. I don't like what he says, but I ain't going to touch him or I'll hit, hit by lightning. It goes on, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Herod made room for John because he knew that God's hand was on John, and Herod liked to hear him. And I think at some level, Herod was hoping one day John would say something that would push him over the edge and he would actually repent. But that comes down to the heart, doesn't it? John can't make a person repent. You can't make a person repent. I can't make a person repent. But we can sure pray that they will repent. Amen? But it was Herodias, the unlawful wife that he had taken from his brother. She was a Jezebel. I mean, she was a New Testament Jezebel, just like in the Old Testament, uh, just a wicked woman uh, that she ultimately wanted and succeeded in convincing Herod. Remember, Herod feared the Lord in some respect and feared John enough to, to not touch him, but she convinced Herod to arrest John when John openly rebuked Herod. Because when John openly rebuked Herod, the word was out that John just flat out told the local king to his face. And now he's in prison, but she wants him dead. He's not only in prison, this woman wants him dead. By the way, that tells us that um, there's just as many women capable of evil things as men. And in many ways, Herod was a little more open to the gospel than even Herodias was. But both of them ultimately rejected now, if you go back to John's introduction of Jesus, now again, thinking about why is John confused? He's known Jesus since they were young. Why is John a little confused here? 
Why is he wondering, I need to clarify this question. Why would John be confused when he had seen Jesus? He had baptized Jesus. He had seen the power of the Lord uh, come to He saw the dove descend upon Jesus. How many of you have ever seen a dove descend on anyone? He saw all these things take place, but he still had some questions. If you go back to John's introduction of Jesus, he says the following. Remember, he says it under the full guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is what John said way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one, capital one, mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now listen to the verse 17. This is where John, mine probably was. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was thinking, more than likely, we don't know exactly what was in John's mind, but we know what he said back there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. John was thinking, the Holy Spirit told me to say that. By the way, prophets say what God tells them to say, not what they feel like saying. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, go on and on. And they don't understand the full meaning. Even prophets, when they speak for the Lord, they sometimes are scratching their own head like, I wonder what God meant by that. If you, when you read Ezekiel with us, some of the things he was told to do, he had to be wondering, what in the world does this mean? Say what the Lord says. So he says, under the Holy Spirit, he's going to burn the chaff with un quenchable fire. Now John understood the imagery of what he was thinking about. He knew that the wheat meant those that were, that were under God's grace, and the chaff meant those that were rebellious and stiff-necked against the Lord. So he thought he's going to burn those up. The Spirit had placed in John's mouth words that would take place. Would you agree that those will take place eventually? Those things that would take place, but they were not taking place at the present time of Jesus' ministry. We all can get confused about present circumstances in our lives, can't we? Why am I going through this? I don't understand this. How could this possibly make me joyful? Right? How could this possibly make me more like Christ? But the more you just take it to the Lord, actually don't stew on it too much, just keep taking it to Jesus, He'll start to show you even if you can't put it in words, you just kind of have this settling in your spirit of God says, it is well with your soul. And this is where John was at. Was Jesus going to be doing these things? John is perhaps wondering. Again, I don't know for certain what's in John's mind. None of us do. But I'm just saying what we know the scriptures tell us. John is perhaps wondering, why is Jesus healing and doing all these miracles but he's not cleansing out the wickedness in Israel. He's not taking out the ones that really hold the keys to bringing in revival. I mean, he's thinking, hold on, I'm pretty sure Herod's part of the chaff, and Herodias is part of the chaff, but they're not being quenched with fire. I'm the one in prison. They're having a big party. In fact, the day he is beheaded, they're having a huge party. So he's thinking, potentially, what's going on here? On top of not seeing Jesus do what he's prophesied, yet Jesus will do these things. Amen? These things will come, but they're not happening yet. Happening yet. He's in prison. So notice Jesus' response to the question. They ask him twice, by the way, verse 19 and 20, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus' first response is he doesn't really respond. It doesn't appear verbally. Look what happens in verse 21. In that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. That is an answer, by the way. <laughs> How many of you can do that as a response? You want an answer? All right. All you blind people can see. Evil spirits, gone. Uh, all of you are healed. These are multitudes. We're not talking about a couple of people. Amazing. Jaw-dropping for the two disciples of John that are standing there. We've heard about this. 
This is unbelievable. Literally, unbelievable. Who would believe if we told this, if we traveled a thousand miles away and tried to sell someone in foreign countries, we just saw this, they think we've lost our minds. But they saw it with their very own eyes. And look what Jesus says in verse 22. Go and tell John the things you have seen. You've seen them yourself. You go tell him the things you've seen and the things you've heard. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And by the way, the gospel's right in there too. The gospel's preached. Jesus never did, you know, it's very important for us to remember when we do good things from a humanitarian aid standpoint, it must come with the gospel. Jesus was not giving bowls of porridge, but not telling them what they needed for their soul. He was healing, he was feeding, he was doing all those things, but the gospel is what needs to be preached. We must tell people about Christ. And he goes, you go and tell John you've seen all these things. You've seen the power of my preaching. You've seen the power of my healing. You've seen it with your own eyes. You know that the Lord is anoint, has anointed, uh, which is what Messiah means, anointed one. You've seen the anointed one doing what I've said I would do. Actually, remember, remember, he stood up and he quoted from the book of Isaiah, all these things he was prophesied to do. We can lose track of all the pictures when we're looking at what's going on, but he says one last thing. He tells him in this soft, gentle answer, but yet unmistakably underscoring Jesus' power over a fallen world. Unmistakably saying, the fallen world is under my feet. They see it for themselves, but he adds one last thing that seems to address John's imprisonment. No one mentions John being in prison here. Jesus, of course, knows that he is. And ultimately, Jesus addresses all those that are persecuted for the name of Christ with this answer in the 23rd verse. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It seems to address John's condition and others that are persecuted. The word offend here, uh, what it actually means is uh, a couple of different meanings for this word offend. To displease, to be indignant, to fall away. Blessed is he who does not fall away because of me. Blessed is he who is not mad and indignant because of me. Blessed is he who is not displeased with my will because of me. And John would receive that well and say, this is how John would respond to that. Aye, aye, sir. I now have your answer. I continue to point people to you. I'm on the right track. Here's the thing. John was on the right track. Isn't it great when you find out, you ask the Lord, Lord, should I do this? And God says, keep doing what you're doing. Isn't that great? Sometimes we have wobbly knees. We think we should actually do a U-turn. And God says, I didn't tell you to take a U-turn. Go ahead through the hard storm. Go ahead through the difficult time. Don't take a U-turn. You're on the right track. That's the message John got. You're on the right track. I am the healer. That unquenchable fire thing, that's coming. And my time, not yours. God's timing isn't always ours, is it? Let's look at his thoughts. From this time forward, by the way, John's ministry is beginning to decrease. While Jesus' ministry is what? Beginning to increase. John is going down, Jesus is rising up. His thoughts. There were, um, there were opinions and observations on the life and ministry of John the Baptist, no doubt, during those days. Can you imagine the thoughts and opinions on John the Baptist? By the way, John the Baptist would not, <laughs> this is an interesting thing in the day and age we live, John the Baptist would not be accepted as the pastor of many churches in America. John, where's your doctorate? No divinity school? You, hold on. You're, you're a Levite, right? Yes. You were born Levite, right? Yes. Did you go to Temple Levite School? No. Where's your training? Desert. Where's your suit? You're wearing camel skin, I see. This, uh, this isn't going to play well in our neighborhood, John. Uh, our folks expect... Dr. John the Baptist, you're not not fitting the description at all. 
He wouldn't be accepted by many today in the ministry. Many prophets would not have been accepted today in the ministry. But um, no doubt in his time, some would criticize his clothing as low class. Or even demeaning to someone born a Levite. Uh, John, this is not a good, this is not in any way a good, faithful example of what your father was, who was a Levite that wore the white robes in the priesthood. Some might consider John's whole ministry some kind of act, right? It's contrived. This whole camel skin thing, eating locust, all this stuff, kind of the cutting edge way he preaches, it's all some sort of act. Some might say that. The religious leaders, they would despise his call for repentance, though. They would despise it. And they would also despise that he would expose them as hypocrites, wouldn't they? He called them this nice little phrase, you brood of vipers. Another way to win friends and influence people. John had not read that book, apparently. But again, these things were done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was not trying to do these for effect. He wasn't trying to be obtuse. He wasn't trying to be offensive. He wasn't trying to make a point. He was doing what the Lord called him to do. I read a quote recently that said, you know, we're, we're too quick to idolize men but we're also way too quick to criticize them too, aren't we? There's men we should never idolize, and that's all men. We shouldn't idolize any man. But we also need to be careful that we're not overly critical. There's ministries that are not like mine, but I know they're of the Lord. And they might not look and act like I do, but God's made them different, wired them different. The defining thing is do they preach the truth or not? I don't care if their style's different. I don't care if they look different. I gather with other pastors from different denominations, and I love that they're not the same as me. They look different from me. They act different from me. And you should like the same, too. That God has diversity in the body of Christ. But be careful not to criticize just because someone doesn't look or act or talk or their cadence is different. Maybe God has empowered them for such a time as this or such a place as that. Though many were saved and baptized under John's preaching, many, many others, especially the religious leaders and the ruling class, they hated him, and they tried to discredit him all the time. There's always people trying to discredit, discredit accurate, godly ministries. There's always going to be people doing that, nipping at the heels. In one respect, Christian, it only matters what Christ thinks of you and your ministry. You realize that? In one respect, it only matters what Christ thinks of you and your ministry. The assessment of Jesus actually counts. Everyone else's assessment at the end of the day, in some, way, in some respects, just doesn't count. Now, our testimony should be evident. Jesus talked about that you'll know them by their fruits. So that's what I'm saying. In one respect, only Jesus. In the other respect, there should be some evidence to all uh, that, uh, that we... Uh, love the Lord, and whether you're called to be in full-time ministry or the ministry of a home, uh, stay-at-home mom or the ministry of someone working in the workplace, it should be evident. But at the end of the day, you have to do and be who God's called you to be, not be somebody else. You also have to ignore false reports and gossip in your life. And they'll come, won't they? You ever had anyone gossip about you? One of the prime places that can happen is other family members. They're the worst. Family members are some of the worst at lighting fires at other family members. You ever been to a family reunion? You can feel the coldness in certain corners. You know so-and-so said something about, and everyone else there knows it. And you're wondering, is it true? Is it not true? I wonder if, it, you know, did they do that? Did they not do that? These things happen. You have to ignore these things and let time and the character of Christ speak for you. Amen? Some things just take time. You've got to stand the test of time. I don't remember which one of the long-ago pastors or evangelists that said it, but I've never forgotten this quote, and it stuck with me for at least 15 years. It doesn't matter what anyone says about you, provided it isn't true. It doesn't matter. 
Because God eventually will vindicate those that are his. Isn't that great? He owns time and space. He'll, fi he'll figure out. John Bunyan said this. John Bunyan said, if my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. And if my life is fruitful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me. Isn't that great? If your life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises you. But if it's fruitless, it doesn't matter. Or if it's fruitful, it doesn't matter who criticizes Remember that Jesus said back in chapter 6, one chapter earlier, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Do you realize how many people try so hard for every single person to speak well of them? Try and get God to speak well of you, and you're going to have some people that will really, really love and come alongside you, and you're going to have other people that will hate and despise you. Do you think our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in jails in North Korea, do you think they're really mean people? No. They're some of the most kind, compassionate people on planet Earth, and they're hated for actually being loving and kind. Jesus said this. John experiencing it right now. But these are Jesus' thoughts on John. John didn't have, uh, John didn't have the problem. John didn't have the problem of all men speaking well of him. That was never something John had to worry about. John, what is it like to have everyone love you? John's like, I don't know what that's like. I'm always in a minority. He faced strong opposition, and yet he still had committed disciples, didn't he? Isn't that great? He faced strong opposition, but like David had his mighty men, John had his mighty men. You have to ask yourself, if you want to be mighty men and mighty women of the Lord, because that's a small group sometimes. John had committed disciples, men that were faithful, men that were loyal, women that were faithful and loyal, who knew that John was a man set apart by God, and they knew that John was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They knew it. And they worked hard with him in the ministry. But whatever estimation they had of John, whatever estimation they had of John, Jesus' estimation of John based on what he says here, is no doubt considerably higher. Isn't that great? That Jesus had a higher estimation of John than even his fellow disciples. It's something. Isn't it something that John's disciples, they loved and appreciated John. They did. They immediately went on this mission for, for John. They, were, they loved and appreciated him so much, but they likely had no idea how anointed John actually was. They didn't know how, later they would probably wonder, how did we not see the very special, 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 special anointing on his life? Um, Paul, speaking of Epaphroditus, said in Philippians, hold such men in esteem. Don't worship them, but understand that God put them in your life for a very important reason. I thank God for people he's put in my life. I'm, I look forward to Sam Nadler coming. I know God's used him all over the earth to plant churches and to mentor pastors and to pour into people. I thank the Lord for what Pastor Chuck, I know God had a great calling on Chuck's life. How many, how many believe that? That God's used him in a mighty way. He speaks so soft and all it does is churches pop up everywhere. He had no wisdom of speech like my, there's a, all these hipster pastors today that have colors and flashing lights behind them. Chuck just gets up there, says a few things, and all of a sudden, poof, 10 guys are called to go plant a church. That anointing. When you read the Bible and Christian history, you realize that great men of God never knew they were great. Isn't that great? That's a lot of great, I know. <laughs> Great men of God never knew they were great, though. In one sense, they're not. Because even our righteousness is filthy rags. That's true. Even our righteousness is filthy rags. F.B. Meyer said this. I love F.B. Meyer was in the 18, 1800s as well. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above the other, that as the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves beneath one another. It's not a question of growing taller, but steeping lower. That's what he realized. That God's mature men go lower. That's why John said, I have to decrease. That he'll increase. Same is true for you. We have to decrease. We have to go lower. We have to be in more prayer, more humble, more looking unto him. 
But three quick things that, that I take from Jesus in his observation of John's ministry. Three quick things. He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did you, did you go out there to see a reed shaken by the wind? John was an immovable man. A rock of a man. He was not carried about by the wind of doctrine. You could not come up to John and say, John, all the other churches are now doing this. Oh, but everyone else says that you've got to try this marketing tactic. If you try this marketing tactic, you're guaranteed to capture people's hearts and mind. John, whatever you do, when you get in front of Herod, say really nice, pleasant things to him. If you do, he might even pay you as an evangelist, and you can be a hireling. And John's like, I don't want his money. I want to see him saved. But if you don't see him saved, you'll probably lose your life. But then I'll be in heaven with God. That's the immovable spirit that the Holy Spirit had put in him. An immovable man. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul was such a man. He said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, but also always abounding. Amen? Always abounding in the joy and the work of the Lord. He was an immovable man. Jesus said, you didn't go out there to see a reed shaken. You didn't see a guy who changed the teaching of scriptures to match the culture. John, uh, in, in Herod's kingdom... This is the new morality. This is the new normal. And John's like, really? I'm going to give you the Moses normal. But John, that's not the new normal. The new normal says this. And John says, well, you can go listen to the new normal teachers because I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I will, Moses came from the wilderness. Elijah came from the wilderness. And I come from the wilderness in the spirit of Elijah, and I will say, thus saith the Lord, not because it's popular, but because God is an immovable man, God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And this is the message John preached. Jesus said, you didn't go out there to see someone who would say whatever you thought, whatever the teacher thought you wanted to hear, so they would be popular with you. And it'd be a chameleon. You went out there because you knew he would speak as the Lord had called him to speak. You went out there also. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? We have pastors wearing $1,000 suits. $2,000 suits. Some more. Some will credit their ministry validation and actually the proof of God's blessing because they have jet, Learjets to fly around on. Jesus said, why did you go out to see John? Because he actually had the affluence of Herod no, you went and saw him because he had the opposite. You knew that he must be in love with something else more than money, pleasure, and possessions. That he wasn't greedy for gain. That he wasn't focused on having all the things that the world had. You went out there because you were intrigued that a man who was born in the priesthood, who could have had a high and better income, chose not to. Do you, realize that about, do you guys realize that about John the Baptist? He was born as a Levite. He could have had, he could have had a nice house. But he chose not to because the Lord says, I want you to live a life of self-denial, self-discipline, not be a lover of money, not be a lover of position in pleasures and pride of life. And then the third, he says, and what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. The third thing, Jesus said three things, an immovable man, a self-disciplined man, and a man of the word. A man that loved God's word, knew God's word, and uncompromisingly, but in love, spoke God's word. He said, you went out to see a prophet because you knew he would not give you his opinion. Prophets don't give you their opinion. Prophets would speak, thus saith what? The Lord. Not thus saith John, not thus saith Daniel, not thus saith Moses. Thus saith the Lord. And you knew that he would speak what the Lord said, but he was more than just a prophet. He was a very special prophet. He was the last of, the, of what would be kind of like the Old Testament prophets, but he was the only one that would be the one preparing the way for the Lord, the messenger of this is the one whose sandal strap I am not authorized to even touch. He would present the world to, he would say, this is Jesus. I will now step aside and go up 
and be with the Father so you can hear only him. In Ezekiel 14, 14, it says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. Let me be clear. God does say that some men have lived more faithful than others. Amen? And Jesus, you know, we, if you're saved by grace, you'll go to heaven. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? But there will be greater rewards for men that have taken greater steps of faith. And Jesus said, let me be clear, of all the prophets born of women, there's not a greater one than just has been in your presence for the last couple of years. Wow. Can you imagine Jesus saying about, about anyone? That's amazing. And yet he says, but he who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now this, no one knows the full meaning of what Jesus means by this. Anyone that tells you they know precisely 100% what Jesus means by that statement. I've read that verse so many times and I go back and forth. What is the full meaning of that statement? You know when I'll find out? When I get to heaven. I think part of that meaning is this, that even the person that's not called to the great ministry of John, some woman that gives the little mite that Jesus noticed, remember the, the widow with the two mites, that Jesus will say in, th in this way, that those that even didn't have some great ministry, but they love the Lord, they are a greater manifestation even of God's grace. That God actually calls people for different reasons. John's calling is different than maybe uh, some of your, well, he's different than all of our calling because he's a very unique calling. But yet it can still be a great calling. Amen? Still be a great calling. Let's look at these last couple of verses as we come to a close. And when the people heard him, the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. A bunch of people not only got healed, but got saved. Isn't that great? As Jesus expounded on his own ministry and he expounded on John's ministry, he was an irrefutable witness of himself, his, his, his works and his miracles were, and an irrefutable witness of John's ministry. But also, this is problematic because if John's ministry is legitimate, then anyone who didn't listen to John has a problem too. Because you've rejected John... Now you've rejected, the Bible says, on the strength of what? Two witnesses. You've heard John, you've now heard me, and you're on strike three. If you haven't said what? I don't believe John, he was a kook. What about Jesus? Mm, he's got his problems too. That was some of the group. But some of them justified God, and they received the Lord having been baptized with the baptism, they repented. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. Matthew 17, 5 says, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased, hear him. If you're taking notes under his testing. Everyone there had heard Jesus personally. They knew John's testimony. They've now heard the Lord. Revelation 3.14 says, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus says, I hold the whole universe in my hand. Now that I've said what I've said, now that I've shown you what I've shown, I am the Lord. You need to repent. John's, John's preaching of repentance, Jesus did the same thing. Remember, Jesus began his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God's hand. Jesus said, the message hasn't changed. All of you still need to repent. I've healed you physically, but you need to be healed spiritually at the heart level. doesn't matter if you were blind and now can see and go to hell with both eyes. You want to be seen spiritually. And he gives grace to all those that are humble and are believing and even these tax collectors, which the Jewish leaders hated the tax collectors, despised them. They received grace. But look at verse 30. What a sad verse. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected what? The will of God for themselves. What was the will of God for them? 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will for Herod was to repent, but Herod would not. 
God's will for Herodias was to repent. She would not. God's will for these religious leaders was they would repent and be baptized, but so far, they would not. They rejected the will of God for themselves. No one will ever be able to stand before God, the great white throne judgment, and say, you railroaded me into the lake of fire. God will say, no, no, no. You rejected my will for you that all should come to repentance. Remember that day in June? Remember that day in 2014? Remember this time? Remember these times I sent prophets to you? I sent the word of God to you? And you said, maybe next year. Maybe next month. Maybe let me, ask, let me study it a little bit more. Let me earn my first million and then maybe. All of these things. Whatever the reason was, these Pharisees and lawyers, they rejected the will of God, not having been baptized by John. That means they wouldn't repent because John said you had to turn from your sin. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were righteous. A.W. Tozer said, so we will be brought one by one to the testing place. We may never know when we are there. At that testing place, there will be no dozen possible choices for us, but just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. Jesus says there's two choices here. Believe the testimony of John and repent. Believe my testimony and my love for you and repent. But he says you're like the children in the marketplace. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned and you didn't weep. John came and John was an austere Spartan of a man. You should have loved John, Pharisees, because John was very rigid in a sense, right? John was like, I won't eat that. I, give me locusts, give me honey. I live in the wilderness. I sleep on the ground. Uh, you should have loved that about John, Jesus said. You should have loved that this man rejected wickedness in every form. He spoke against immorality. He didn't, he didn't any way, any way did he ever compromise the law of Moses. You should have loved that about him. What did you say about him? He's filled with a demon. That was their assessment of him. So then I come along, Jesus says. John points to me. Then I come along, and you see me putting my arm around sinners, telling prostitutes you can be saved. And you tell me you're a wine-bibber and a glutton and a friend of sinners. And Jesus says, I'm pretty sure that no matter who I trot out, you will reject. Amen? That's what he's saying. It said, whatever notes the children play on the flute, you reject the tune. And Jesus says, if you stay in that condition, it's going to be a bad day for you. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus looks back and he has his children now. All those that repented, he says, wisdom is, how would you possibly explain away that these prostitutes all of a sudden have chosen to no longer be prostitutes, that these tax collectors are no longer skimming people off the top and robbing them. How do you explain that overnight they have transformed wisdom is justified by the children of God? You, all, you and I, we are the same witness in the world, aren't we? That wisdom says, you wouldn't be doing that if God didn't radically transform you. I've met people, I'll close with this, you know, when I was still in the business world, uh, I would meet people that, uh, you know, I'd tell them how I came to faith in Christ, and I'd tell them, oh, man, I, I used to do this, and I used to be like this, and they'd be like, I can't imagine that at all. I can't imagine you cussing. I'm like, you should have seen me play basketball. I missed a shot. You know, it was like four minutes of cursing and all this kind of stuff. I said, all that stuff... God changes us. I couldn't change me. You couldn't change you, could you? But Jesus is the irrefutable witness that when we say, yes, Lord, I believe, everything changes. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that uh, your word is true. You are faithful. You are true. And Lord, we love and appreciate that you have come and you've given your life for us. Thank you, Jesus, that your witness is confirmed. And even though we've had doubts at times, like John, Lord, we thank you that we bring those doubts to you and you've made it perfectly clear that you are to be trusted and that you're not willing that we should ever experience your wrath, but only that we would experience your grace. Before we close in song, I just want to ask, is there 
anyone at all. Maybe everyone here is saved. Maybe everyone here knows the Lord. But if anyone in here says, you know, I, I, I don't know if the Lord were to take me home, call my life, if I would spend eternity in heaven. Just raise your hand right where you're at. Say, I, I'm not sure that I would spend eternity in heaven. I'm, I'm not sure of that. Anyone at all. I don't ask that question every time. I probably ask it maybe one out of every ten times. But if there's anyone here, just raise your hand and say, Look, I'm not, I'm not sure of that. Because Jesus would save you today. Amen?